道可道，非常道；名可名，非常名。So begins the Tao Te Ching, one of the most enigmatic and classic works of Chinese philosophy, supposedly written by Laozi almost two and a half millennia ago. The book opens with a paradox: Tao Ke Tao, the way that can be trodden or the way that can be explained. Fei Chang Dao is not the eternal way. Ming Ke Ming, the name which can be named. Fei Chang Ming is not the eternal name. So Lao Tzu opens us by essentially explaining that the subject of his book, the Dao or the Way, the internal essence of all things that motivates their actions, that moves the universe, is not something he can talk about. Is not something that he can explain to other people, and yet he writes the whole book about it. And we are sitting to listen to him today, as he has written almost two and a half thousand years later, what he thinks about the progression of the world, what we should do in our lives, and how we should lead, knowing that again this same principle is not something that he's able to explain. What is the import of a book like this? We decided to read this book in my monthly book club, and I selected it because I think that there is a very important message of the book that has a lot of relevance today. I'm going to try to argue that, far from being just something you can dismiss as Eastern mysticism or something that's irrelevant in our modern lives, there is a real source of wisdom in these ideas, and they actually have something fairly profound that they're trying to argue. Albeit often not in the most straightforward way, and the straightforwardness is partially the point that we try to deal with things in a way that involves trying to reason and control about them, and this is maybe contrary to how we should act, and how we should do, and how we should live our lives. I think before I get into the discussion of what are the main themes of the book, what What is this book actually trying to tell you to do? I think it's important to start by examining the context. How was the book written? For whom was it meant to be for? And what was the situation at the time? So most scholars ascribe this book to a figure named Laozi. Now, Laozi itself is a bit of a pen name. It means the old master. So that's not really that reassuring that this was in fact a, an actual person who lived in an exact time, and we know exactly when he wrote the book. Unfortunately, for most historical figures in this time period, there's something of this nature of an ambiguity about his actual existence and the authorship of this exact work. What we do think is that it was written sometime in the Warring States period in China. So this was a period of intense political turmoil. Lots of different factions, lots of different would-be dynasties fighting over control of the Middle Kingdom, and so it's important to recognize that the context from which the book was written was really Laozi addressing the ruling class. Most people can't read classical Chinese, and even in that era, most people were illiterate. In the very way the book is written, Laozi frequently rec. Uh, refers to the common people, not as being the intended audience for this book, but indeed whom the sage and the ruling class are to deal with in his way. And so, I think it's important to recognize this background context. This is a situation in which there's quite a bit of chaos, quite a bit of turmoil, quite a bit of 
um, maim and slaughter, most likely. And, and Lao Tzu, seeing all of this, sees it as being out of sync with how he views the natural world. Lao Tzu is a bit of a pacifist. He advocates not avoiding all military conflict, but simply a way that is uh, more defensive than aggressive. It's not uh, a way that admires bold heroism, but someone who admires putting down the sword when it is necessary. So I think in this context, a lot of the ideas that seem most mysterious about what Laozi is saying, this idea of Wu Wei, the idea of non-action or non-doing as being the principle of life, or the idea that to know virtue is to not be able to talk about it, seem kind of paradoxical or baffling, but I think it's important to recognize that they are a reaction to what he's perceiving in the world around him at the time. Now, given that it was written in this context, does that mean that we can dismiss it as just being a little bit of cultural baggage left over from that time period and that it doesn't have relevance today? I don't think so. I think that what the Tao Te Ching is able to express is a lot of human universal truths. And a lot of these human universal truths were written in this context and for this intended audience. But I think there's a lot of lessons that can apply even in our very different modern context and very different modern audience today. So before I get into the actual discussion of it, I want to make a note on translation. Now, I actually, one of the reasons I selfishly assigned this book was that I have had a Chinese edition of this book, which has the original classical Chinese, as well as much more copious amounts of modern Chinese, modern standard Mandarin uh, notes about the work, including a paraphrase into modern Chinese, as well as uh, an explanation of the text. And I've had this book for a couple years, and every time I pick it up and I try to read through it, I would give up. It's very difficult. Classical Chinese is uh, quite different from modern Mandarin. It's, I would say, a, a probably a larger difference than there is between Shakespearean English and modern English. Again, we're thinking about Shakespeare was written only maybe uh, several hundred years ago, whereas Lao Tzu wrote this work almost two and a half millennia ago. So there's really been a large change both in the background culture and also in the language itself since then. So even most Chinese people who have not studied classical Chinese cannot fluently read Tao Te Ching in its original text. So that being said, I decided that I would try to go through it with the Mandarin, try to go through it with the classical Chinese, and then also to accompany it with some English translations. So really, we're talking about a very short book. The original is only about 5,000 characters, so it's quite succinct. But reading it over multiple translations gives one a different impression of it, I think, than if you just read a single English translation. I'd say this not to sound pretentious or not to sound, oh, you know, you should read in the original language. Obviously, if you haven't spent a number of years already learning Chinese or you don't speak it as a native language, it's probably not worth the effort to go out and learn Chinese just to learn this book, unless you're extremely interested. However, I do think that it's important to note for the English reader, particularly the one who maybe has only read one translation before, that the way classical Chinese works is it's extremely dense that the way it was written depended a lot on the reader having a lot of illusions and context to draw upon what does this word exactly mean. And so very often when you see English translations side by side, uh, they may look nothing alike. One may have three paragraphs to explain something that the other translation does in one sentence. And this may seem baffling. How is this even possible to do this? And yet, that's sort of how it works. 
that what is being implied is all these cultural associations, all these linguistic associations that maybe we don't have, and so to do a direct translation is incredibly difficult. This is added to the fact that what Lauds is trying to explain in this book is a kind of mysteriousness. He's trying to provoke you to stop thinking about the world in terms of rationalizations and schemes and little plans and ways that you're going to take advantage of things and trying to quiet those notions to seek a kind of stillness in your own thoughts and in your own feeling about stuff so in a sense it's closer to poetry than it is to a kind of philosophical text in the kind of greek or western view of the word so given that i think it's important to uh, recognize this difficulty and so don't get too tied up i think on whatever english translation you've read or the exact words of it because very often there's going to be multiple interpretations to a single phrase and that's kind of the point the ambiguity of the language itself is kind of powerful let's just start with the the title dao de jing so dao means way in this case laozi is using it as a metaphor to describe this kind of essential uh, animating principle of all things, uh, but he is himself quite vague about what it means. Is in a modern context, would you say that Tao is science? Is it supposed to be quantum field theory, or is it supposed to be some kind of psychological principle? Is the Tao something that's behind everything, or is it if itself everything? The metaphysics are not super clear. Uh, additionally, we have uh, multiple interpretations of this word. So the Tao ke Tao that opens the book has the way that can be, well, some people translate it as the way that can be trodden, maintaining the similarity between the two words. Other people say the way that can be explained or the way that can be uh, spoken. So you can really see how there's a lot of difficulty English translators and even modern Chinese translators have in how do you render a faithful rendition of what Lao Tzu was saying. So Dao De Jing can be translated as uh, the way of virtue, Dao means way and de means virtue and jing means a classic or a, a collected work. So it could be the way of virtue, it could be the virtue and the way, it could be the way and virtue. So really there's a lot of um, possible interpretations here and I think preserving that ambiguity rather than trying to clear it up is, is partly what we're after here. So I want to talk about three main ideas in this discussion podcast. I think these are the main ideas that, even if you decide not to read the Tao Te Ching, these are, for me at least, the main things to take away that a modern person could appreciate and could maybe implement in their life. The first is Wu Wei. So Wu Wei is a very interesting concept which essentially translates to non-action or non-doing. And this is what Lao Tzu holds in the highest esteem, is that the people who can act without doing, the people who can lead without leading, teach without speaking, manage affairs without having them trouble them. So this is an important philosophy of what practically a person should do in this context. The second is the Tao itself. Now, what does this Tao mean metaphysically? Is it a principle of physics? Is it compatible with our modern scientific understanding of things? Or is it something we can dismiss as being, you know, disproven by later science or something that's not the real accurate picture that we should be looking at? And I tend to lean much more on the scientific view of things. And so I, I feel like my interpretation of the Tao may not be the one that all scholars would ascribe to, but I think it's a way of reconciling what is essentially a view that's quite different from how we see things, but yet potentially compatible 
Finally, I want to talk about the or virtue. In particular, what does Lao Tzu have to say about being a good person? And he has a lot of what I would say are quite contrary or quite surprising things to say about virtue that is somewhat almost paradoxical. And I think this is very interesting, especially in light of our last book, The Elephant in the Brain, that Lao Tzu is very suspicious of moral signaling. He's very suspicious of people who pretend at virtue or have the pretension of doing good things so that they can earn higher esteem. And so this idea of a virtue that is without signaling is a very interesting possibility and it's one that he explores even if it is something that is perhaps very difficult or maybe even impossible to attain. So let's start with Wu Wei. So Wu Wei has two words, two Chinese characters, Wu which means uh, without or no or not having, and then wei, which roughly means to act. So this approach is non-doing, and I think it's important to contrast, at least in my mind, this idea of non-doing with what we typically associate in the West with non-doing, which is simply inaction, simply just being lazy, being passive. And this isn't really what Lao Tzu is talking about. He rather contrasts not the state of doing and non-doing as opposed to whether someone is not moving and whether someone is moving around a lot as action or inaction, but rather how do they correspond with this ineffable way of things, this sort of intrinsic flow to the universe that the sage, the person he holds in highest regard, is someone who does with a seeming effortlessness quality to it. So it's not so much taking any action which is forbidden in Taoism, but really about holding at the highest regard the kinds of actions which are themselves very minimal, that they are exactly what's required and nothing more, that they have no decoration or adornment, they're not boastful, they're not reckless, they're just doing exactly what needs to be done in that moment. To understand this, Lao Tzu frequently uses the metaphor of water. He likens water to the Tao as really embodying this principle because it flows effortlessly. It doesn't have any pretensions about, you know, overcoming things, and yet it erodes great mountains and carves great valleys. That water sinks to the low places where people don't like, you know, marshy bogs and the bottoms of sewers and things like that. And thus, in lying in these places of disrepute or these places that people don't like, it inherits its sort of virtuous quality because it handles it all with equanimity. The sage is really the model that Lao Tzu is working on. And again, going to this translation ambiguity here, he often talks about the sage, and it's not clear whether he is saying that everyone should do this, as the sage does, as a prescription to action, or whether he is merely describing how the sage, how his idealized uh, sort of philosopher king or his idealized um, person in the world would behave. And this may make a difference. If we know from psychology that there is a principle of proceduralization in cognitive skills. So when you learn something in the beginning, it's quite deliberative. In, in a Taoist context, there's a lot of way going on when you are first learning something. It's quite effortful and quite deliberative. However, as it becomes more routine, as it becomes more second nature, as it becomes internalized, it just becomes part of your natural behavior or wu wei. 
So you can think about this when you're driving a car. When you drive a car in the beginning, it's incredibly complicated. You you have to have the signal light and you have to do shoulder checks. You have to look all around you. And of course, it's dangerous. If you, if you steer the wrong way, you might get in an accident and hurt someone. Yet, almost all of us, through pattern and through repetition and through habit, eventually operate driving a car in such a wu-wei sort of operation that we don't even think about it. We can carry on conversations. We may even get lost in thought and not realize we're driving the wrong way or going in down the wrong street uh, because of this force of habit, this flow. So I think, I'm not saying that Lao Tzu particularly had this sophisticated model of psychology and proceduralization in mind when he was talking about this, but I think it is important that most of the sentences can be read from having this descriptive component, that it may be that what Lao Tzu is saying about Wu Wei is that this is the idealized state, that one does virtue or goodness or acts in accordance with which it is kind of nothing at all for that person, as opposed to someone who is recklessly striving, greedy, and trying to you know, fulfill all their desires, trying to be really ambitious and assert itself on the world. However, there's quite the possibility that someone who's not the sage, that someone who does not embody this sort of perfected water-like wisdom in dealing with things may need to apply some effort in trying to steer back onto that course. This is a continual paradox not only in Taoism but in Zen Buddhism which inherited many of the ideas of Taoism when it merged with the sort of Buddhist idea of attaining enlightenment was this sort of idea of well is it mean that you should try to not do things because doing more things just exacerbates your striving exacerbates your uh, way your recklessness in the world or do you need to apply some effort to resist those very impulses Now, Lao Tzu does not go into a discussion where he really explains the difference here, and I did not find something, at least in this text, which really clears up the answer. But I think whether or not Wu Wei is meant to be descriptive or prescriptive, I think it's still a useful ideal to look at. And I think it's useful to think about things in terms of how could this be done in a way that involves Wu Wei. So the the first is dealing with things when they require no effort. There's a a chapter, and I'm going to paraphrase here as I noted again on translation difficulties, where Lauza says that for every big thing that one needs to deal with, there was at one point when it was small. For everything that is difficult, there was at one point when it was easy. So there is a certain sense that what he means by Wu Wei is also a very perceptive ability to spot when subtle changes are going to create problems in the future and to deal with them very deftly when they require almost no force. So this is a kind of guiding philosophy that rather than trying to control or force things, it's to recognize that in every difficulty you have right now, it perhaps had its cause many, many years ago or many cycles ago. And so to deal with it in that moment. And sometimes that's not simply dealing with the world. Sometimes that's not trying to have a good life and be successful and have lots of money, but rather your own negative reactions to things, your own feelings that such and such is bad or such and such is something that I should be avoiding or that's awful, that that itself may have its kind of trigger at an earlier point. I can speak from my own experience, having just briefly explored meditation, that one of the things that I found when I started meditating is that many times when I work myself up into an anxious state or an angry state or some unpleasant state, that these states very often had quite subtle 
thought patterns or impulses where there was not the feeling associated, but they went by unnoticed and then they became kind of emotional turmoil over perhaps a few minutes or maybe even an hour or more, sort of in the background, in the unconscious. And then it was only at that point that I realized, oh, wow, I'm really in an unpleasant state right now, in which case it's quite difficult to deal with because, you know, it's, it's quite intense and it's really hard to just ignore it. However, if I had ignored it when it had just very much had those inklings maybe a few minutes or an hour before, if I dismissed it then, it would have been easy. Now, again, I'm not saying that Lao Tzu is making this particularly meditative claim about things, but it is important to recognize that he sees that unfolding, in in my case of this emotional state, he sees that unfolding as being kind of a natural process of the universe, this Tao, this way of things. And so the sage is someone who is not trying to deal with the problem when it's at its most critical, but is trying to deal with things in a very subtle way, just when they need dealing with and no more. The other thing is that he really is trying to express with this Wu Wei is to avoid making things more difficult for yourself through recklessness, through greed, through excessive desire, excessive craving for things. In this case, this view of philosophy is very similar to the Buddhist idea of trying to abandon suffering through abandoning craving. And I think, again, it's useful to look at the context. Who is he advising to do this? He's advising people who are literate in Chinese, people who are educated. So he's talking to the scholars. He's talking to the ruling class. Um, In the Chinese sort of philosophical circles in those days, the sort of goal of the sage was to become the advisor to the king. That was sort of the highest position to aspire towards. And I think you can really look, especially in the context of the warring states in that period in Chinese history, it probably is the case that a lot of kings made problems for themselves because of their desire to conquer, their desire for more territory, their desire to act recklessly, to impose, you know, strict grain levies and harsh decrees and to punish people excessively. And this, all this excessiveness, all this way, all this doing and managing would often create its own resonances within the people. So you impose grain levies that are too harsh and the the people rebel. You attack another country and they are bitter about it. You are too stingy with, you know, making sure you collect your debts on time and people have a certain bitterness which creates further problems for you. So some of the idea of this Wu Wei is not merely about this percepient action where you're doing things in exactly the right moment, but also avoiding a lot of things, a lot of impulses that you might have that will cause you problems later on. And I think it's important to contrast how unusual an idea this Wu Wei is. When we think about modern self-improvement, modern business books, what people are talking about, you know, how the ideal person should live in Western countries, it's very much based on this Protestant work ethic, this idea of doing a lot of things, being conspicuously busy, being conspicuously industrious, showing that you're putting in a lot of effort. And what Laos is saying is essentially advocating the complete opposite, that to be the sage is to be this person who appears idle. To be the great man is to, or, or woman in this case, to be the great person is to be someone who is not busy, who appears like they're doing nothing, who appears like they have no status, who appears like they are completely idle and free with the world. And I think that 
I'm not trying to make the claim that necessarily one of these views is right and one of them is wrong, but it could definitely be argued that given the Western background that indeed most of the world has adopted by this point, that Lao Tzu's advice may serve as somewhat of an antidote to that. That there is a certain sense that in trying to appear busy, we busy ourselves with idle things or we do things that are themselves damaging or reckless. That in trying to appear always connected, we give up that silence that allows us to have uh, important thoughts or to accomplish things. And so I think that Lao's perspective of really setting as his highest regard the people who seem to do nothing is quite opposed to our modern notion of the CEO who appears to be doing everything. And yet, maybe Laozi is right. Maybe the CEO that does a lot less and merely acts only when it is very necessary and again in this very subtle way that carries its import without having um, disastrous consequences is the right way to do things. That micromanaging our lives, micromanaging our affairs is perhaps the wrong way of going about things. Trying to constantly satisfy every desire as soon as we have them, trying to maximally achieve every goal, perhaps is maybe not the right way to do things. And I'm very aware that uh, much of my own life has been filled with this contrast between Wu Wei and Wei, and so I'm still exploring it myself. But I think that the Dao De Jing and Lao Tzu offer a very interesting perspective. So moving on from Wu Wei, I want to talk about Again, the title of the book, Dao. So Dao is a, still used in modern Chinese, a term that refers to way or path. And it's not actually the case that Lao Tzu in the actual book uses this specific word Dao uh, universally. Very often he uses other words which again are to metaphorically allude to this thing that he can't name. So sometimes he uses the word Yi, which means one. Other times he calls it, uh, there's one part where he calls it the the goddess of the valley or the god of the valley, meaning kind of the god of emptiness, because of course a valley is a, an empty space. And there's many other situations where he uses different terms to kind of refer to the same principle. So don't get caught too caught up in the, the word Tao itself as being this thing. Laos is very aware that he can't really talk about it, so he uses lots of different metaphors and allusions to point at it to hopefully give you the idea that, okay, I can't actually talk about the thing itself, but maybe I can describe it and you can realize it personally. I think it's clear that what he's talking about is a kind of mystical experience, a kind of direct knowing, something that cannot be conveyed in words, something that cannot be thought about in reasons, but something that you can kind of just experience for itself. And this is something that I think troubles a lot of people who have sort of scientific backgrounds with Lao Tzu's words, because that's not how science works. That's not how we understand the universe in a modern secular context, is not through this direct knowing of this thing that you can't talk about, this thing that's purely ineffable, even though we're trying to, uh, in the words of David Chapman, we're trying to F a lot about this ineffable thing. So I think there's a couple ways you can look at it. I know some people in a modern context have taken the Tao to mean a metaphysical statement. So a statement about the truth of the universe, that the universe is essentially this Tao and all the things that we talk about are merely what is called the Wan Wu or the uh, 10,000 things or the innumerable things that come out of this hidden unity or this hidden flow of all things. And perhaps there is some truth to that. 
If you look at quantum physics, quantum field theory, we have a set of equations that very neatly describe pretty much the entire universe in a very limited set of things. Now, there is stuff that we haven't understood with that. There's still you know, dark matter and dark energy and all those kinds of things. But there's the possibility that, you know, while Lauza certainly didn't come up with quantum field theory, there's a certain sense that uh, perhaps with all the complications and complexity of the world, it may reduce down to some simpler substance or some simpler principle or some simpler process. Frankly, I'm not as attached to the metaphysical view, despite the fact that, you know, in the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu clearly talks about how this is a sort of metaphysical process, something that's coming before gods, before the creation of the universe, before the creation of heaven and earth. There's this Tao and it's operating on things. It is the, uh, the giver of all life to all things. While he's clearly talking about this in many of his descriptions, in many of his, the ways that he talks about the Tao, He's referring to in what, in my mind, in the kind of modern view, are clearly psychological phenomena. So I'll give an example. One of the big things he talks about with the Tao and this idea of a hidden unity behind things is the idea of relative contrast. There's a section where he talks about, well, for what would beauty be if there were not ugliness? What would good be if there were not evil? What would high be if there were not low? And what he's talking about here is essentially that as human beings, we understand the concept of beauty dependent on an idea of ugliness. If there was no idea of ugliness, then there can also be, therefore, no idea of beauty, that it depends on a contrast. If there were no contrast, they would just be nothing. There would be nothing to talk about. And perhaps that's exactly what this Tao is, the contrastless thing that we're talking about. There's nothing to describe it with because it is everything. There's nothing that there's a background for. But I think that this also has a lot of relevance in this cognitive sense because what we do as human beings in our brain is that we are essentially trying to cut apart the world. We're trying to split it apart into different categories, into different evaluations. Some of those things may be affective, they may be subconscious, but this general process is happening. If you look at modern machine learning algorithms, which may turn out to be you know, quite different from how we operate cognitively, but I think are still a useful uh, starting point in understanding how we think cognitively, machine learning algorithms are quite frequently about getting a big neural net structure to make discriminations between things. So you feed it a lot of input, and what it is essentially doing, this is a mathematical description of a lot of these inputs, is that you can imagine an extremely high dimensional space. So, you know, we have one dimension would be a line, two dimensions would be a piece of paper, three dimensions would be our physical space. Now imagine a hypothetical mathematical space that perhaps has thousands of dimensions or hundreds of dimensions. And what the machine learning algorithm is trying to do is trying to, of this dimension, which includes not only height, length, and width, but perhaps all sorts of features like the color of a particular pixel or, um, you know, how a certain tag in a database is labeled, that it's trying to find a partition or a a line that can cut across that and correctly categorize most of the things as being on one side of the line, it's one way, on the other side of the line, it's another way. And so to the extent that our brains operate in a similar way to this machine learning context, it's clear that relative contrast is extremely important because that's what our brains are doing, is trying to create relative contrast. And so what Laozi is trying to argue as well is that many of our desires, many of our impulses are an urge to get more of one thing and less of something else. So we want more wealth and less famine. We want more 
praise and less shame or less uh, rebuke. We want more uh, esteem and accolades and we want less people disrespecting us. We want to have more territory and not lose territory. We want to have a larger population under our rule and we want to have fewer people. Uh, we, We want to have the opposite of that. So what he's talking about here is that this desire, this impulse, while it may kind of have a certain truth at a relative sense that like for right now we want to move in that direction, ultimately it has to be self-defeating. Ultimately it has to be the case that in order to make every single person happy, well then we redefine what happiness is. It has to be a contrast to that. And so it's from this understanding of relative contrast, which I believe is a psychological principle, that he gets this idea of a Tao and he gets this idea of how we should operate in the world. Another idea is this, that the Tao is something that we can't really understand, we can't formalize. And he has many comments where he likes, again, another metaphor, he likes the idea of the sage to being like an infant, someone who is pure and innocent, someone who has not learned about the world and thus learned how to control and scheme and do all this reckless action. Indeed, Lao Tzu seems to have an almost somewhat derogatory opinion of acquiring the kinds of knowledge that, you know, someone like myself or most people would consider are important. And again, this is something that's worth questioning. Why does he think ignorance is good or why does he think being simple-minded is good? And I think part of it is that if you look at, again, the time period, there was probably a lot of people learning classical texts, this sort of uh, ivory tower scholarship, which maybe didn't have that much relevance to real life. And a lot of it he probably saw as being moral posturing. He saw it as being not about acquiring real knowledge that or not about having this kind of good understanding of the world so you can lead to better outcomes, but so that you can show off and that you can tell people that you're better than other people or that you can scheme and try to come up with plans to trick or steal or um, attack other people in, in stratagems. And He didn't like that, and he thought that the ideal king and the ideal sage is someone who kind of lives in simplicity and harmony and is not trying to always control and manage things, and thus from his own behavior as the model, the people and all the um, common people under him also live under this kind of rubric of simple harmony. Is this realistic? Is this something that can be done? I don't know. Perhaps Lao Tzu is himself making one of his own errors of relative contrast, given that he lived in a time period of great strife and conflict, that he's kind of hoping for a return to a golden era of simplicity and peace, even though perhaps maybe that is itself an issue of relative contrast. I would say another way of looking at the Tao or this idea is not to really even think of it as a thing itself. Rather, that what he is trying to do in the Tao Te Ching is open up your mind to the idea of negative space. That while most people, when they are teaching, most people, when they are giving ideas, focus on the positive. They focus on what is known rather than what is unknown. They focus on what has been categorized versus what cannot be categorized or what has yet to be categorized. Even science is something that we have a feeling that, well, we know all these things about the world, but yet there's lots of things that we don't know. Particularly when we go beyond the very bare basics of quantum uh, physics, there's many, many, many situations where science just doesn't have an answer yet. And that doesn't necessarily imply that answers are impossible to get, but it perhaps implies that there is a certain negative space here that requires appreciation. 
that there is a certain sense that moral philosophy hasn't been solved and we don't have the right answer for what all people should do at all times. And so we should be aware of this balance. So perhaps uh, Lao Tzu in talking about this is providing a yin to science's yang. He's providing the kind of negative element, the element of absence, the element that is uh, not there to show the unity with what is there. That this kind of Tao is him trying to talk about nothing, him trying to talk about the all the nothing that pervades everything else, all the silence that occurs in music between notes. There's one passage where he talks about, you know, if you had all sounds, you would be deaf. If you had all flavors, it would be numbing to your tongue. If you had all dazzling brightness of colors, you would be blind. And so it is by the nature of the Tao, the nature of the very absence of things, that we are able to uh, affect the world, that we are able to actually have progress. So he doesn't see this negative as something to be overcome, something to be defeated, but something to be worked with. One of the other metaphors he uses is the idea of a wheel, that in the center of a wheel, there's a hole where you can fit the axle. And were it not for this hole, you could not fix the wheel onto a uh, cart and the cart wouldn't be able to move. If you did not have an empty space in a pitcher, you would not be able to drink water from it. And so he talks about the utility of this negative space. So the Tao is not a thing, but perhaps the very absence of thing itself is what he's talking about and trying to point to in this book. Now I want to talk about the final idea, and this is the or the basically virtue. And this is something that gets translated into different terms, but I like virtue the best because virtue, I think, is closer to what he's thinking of. This isn't law, this isn't ethics, this isn't morality in the sense of fixed rules or fixed ideas or customs about how to do things. Rather, it's this kind of pure essence of what is goodness, what is the right thing to do, how you should live. And I find it interesting that both Taoism and Buddhism somewhat independently came up with the idea of virtue being connected to a mystical experience or an experience of kind of non-thinking, non-cognitive, non-rational basis of directly experiencing the world. And this is quite interesting. I think that on the one hand, there's a part in probably most of our secular imaginations that says that, well you know, maybe mysticism, maybe that's all nonsense. Maybe that's something that's just, you know, that's a dismissal of modern science. It's something that's not true. However, I think the more you dig into psychology, the more you realize that what we consider ourself, what we consider the motivating force for the contents of our thoughts, our imaginations, the words we speak to other people, is very frequently a self-serving kind of tool. That it's not really trying to represent reality, that it is trying to manipulate things to create the best image, which is very often at least partially false. This is something that we talked about in uh, last month with the elephant in the brain that maybe most of our behaviors and most of our conspicuous thoughts and actions are of this kind of deceptive signaling quality where we're trying to do one thing but we're really, you know, trying to pretend to do another thing. And so I don't know whether it's the case that it is possible to have an experience where this is removed or even lessened. It may just be an ideal to aspire towards, or it may even be a self-defeating one if it's the case that, you know, people who have these kinds of non-cognitive experiences, experiences devoid of um, a lot of thinking and ideas and scheming, perhaps maybe they're not that moral. Maybe it's the that they're just 
pretending to be moral the way that uh, many other people are. I don't know. But I do think it's very interesting that he draws this connection. And to note that this is a very different connection than it was drawn in the West. In Western philosophy, the whole idea was that if we know more, if we can codify the rules, if we can figure out what is the basis of morality, whether it's uh, the Bible, whether it is the categorical imperative as Immanuel Kant, whether it's you know principle of utilitarianism, all of these ideas in the Western philosophical tradition basically say that if we really thought about it and we really came up with good rules and principles, then it would be at least possible in theory to live a moral life. And what Lao Tzu is kind of saying is almost that this is maybe moving in the wrong direction. That if we wanted to be more moral, if we wanted to embody virtue, that we need to move away from all of this thinking and philosophizing and scheming and have this kind of direct, simple awareness of reality and move within it. I don't know. I don't know whether the West or the East was right on this point, but I do think that it's worth thinking about because I feel like the assumptions of Western philosophy are so taken for granted. It's so taken for granted that philosophizing should lead to good outcomes that that point itself has often been neglected. And it's something that, at least in traditional philosophy, uh, often doesn't get as much uh, FaceTime as it probably should. Another part of the or the way of virtue that um, Lao Tzu describes is a kind of diminution of the self, a minimizing of one's desires, a minimizing of one's attempt to control and manipulate and to speak and to really do a lot of things to try to interfere in the process of things. I think this is a very interesting philosophy too. Again, it's worth noting that the background context for this is that he's trying to give advice to a ruler who may, in his doing, do things that are quite bad, that the default for action is probably so horrible for the kings that have universal power that, you know, perhaps non-doing really is truly an enlightened philosophy that maybe goes overboard in our modern world. I don't know. But what I do think is interesting is that this kind of gives Taoism a sort of anti-self-improvement feel because self-improvement is about how do you construct your life in such a way so that you get better outcomes for you, so that you are have a better career, so that you have a better relationship, so that you have more money, so that you are more fit, so that all of these things accrue to you and you become a better person. Whereas what Laos is really trying to do is to diminish that, to avoid seeking status, to avoid seeking wealth, to be okay with having less, to having a kind of pleasant demeanor and equanimous um, abiding in just all the things that happen. He talks about how you should treat misfortune as you treat great success. Why? Because when you are successful, then you're worried about losing the fortune. When you uh, have misfortune happen, then you are upset about that. So the, the way to Avoid this paradox is simply to treat them both equally, that when people are good to you, you should treat them with kindness. When people are bad to you, you should treat with them with kindness. So this is a very different way of doing things. And, it, and indeed, this selflessness, this ideal of removing the self or diminishing the self is common in many religions and quite contrasted with a lot of self-improvement advice. Now, this isn't the case that Laozi is saying that, well, we should just do nothing, and doing nothing is therefore the cultivation of oneself. There are many uh, passages where he talks about cultivation, self-cultivation. and But this self-cultivation is, again, in the sort of meditative view of diminishing one's desires, diminishing one's reckless and greedy attitude towards things. And as Laozi says, if one acts in this way, then kind of all will be all right in the end.
So I find this aspect very interesting because it perhaps avoids some of the conflicts that were uh, related to us earlier. What Lao Tzu is very critical of is what I'll call the pretension of virtue or the idea of being a moral person such that you are lauded and esteemed and you get fame and acclaim for being a good person. Lao Tzu really, it's not that he says this is necessarily bad, but he recognizes that that is what most people are seeking. And because their intentions are not pure, they often are not very moral people despite pretending to be so. So he frequently makes the case that, you know, the ideal king is someone who kind of disparages oneself, calls himself an orphan, calls himself kind of a malign, calls himself something that most people would not want to be referred to. But in doing so, in debasing himself, in lowering kind of the public opinion of him, he kind of paradoxically reaches a higher perfection, that water in its flow down the mountain and going down into the low-lying places with stench and decay kind of attains its true virtue by willingness to compart with that or willingness to stay there in those low places. What Lao Tzu is really talking about, I would say, is a kind of the paradox of living a good life. That if you direct your action and your will and your conscious mind to say, you know what, I'm going to be a better person, there's a good chance that that's partially false, that that's partially a kind of scheming on your part to appear more virtuous, to appear more benevolent. Um, we talked about this last time in the elephant in the brain, which didn't really propose a solution, which didn't have any real answer to what we should do about our own hypocrisy, or even if it's possible to avoid our own hypocrisy. But Lao Tzu is apparently aware of this issue, and the way he's suggesting it is, again, kind of this diminution of the self, a kind of lowering or lessening of this rationalization faculty, this ability to talk and rationalize and scheme that he wants us to just kind of appreciate how things are in a direct way and to try to uh, make ourselves adjusted to that flow. And I think in light of modern psychology, this is probably not the worst thing to suggest, despite how paradoxical it might sound to our ears. I want to leave uh, one of the my favorite lines of the book um, is that he talks about these issues and kind of aware of his own self-contradictory nature. He says, true words appear paradoxical or often appear contradictory. So his idea is often in making these things which are seemingly opposites and showing the hidden unity behind them. When he talks about how to live a good life, you may have to give up the idea of living a good life. That to do things, you may have to give up the idea of doing things. That to be this sort of great person, this great sage, you might have to give up the pretension of sagacity or the pretension of trying to be that. Indeed, he has a, I would say, a somewhat ironic and perhaps uh, even he was aware of the, the contradiction in this, that those who talk about the Tao a lot do not know it and those who do not talk about it know it well. And so it's quite an amusing statement to come from someone who perhaps wrote all this uh, work and did all this thinking about the Tao that perhaps he himself is admitting that he is far from the ideal. I don't know what the exact right answer is with the Tao Te Ching. I don't think that there's a direct conclusion that you can draw for it. But I think that the book is something worth reading and it's something worth thinking over. In our modern life, we are so saturated in our own culture. We're so saturated in our own way of thinking about things that it's very difficult to not see things in those terms. 
And Laos's book was certainly written before there was a lot of Western influence in China, um, certainly influenced, uh, it was arriving before modernity and industrialization and information technology and democracy, it, all of these modern concepts that so define our lives today. But yet I think there is a truth to what he's saying and perhaps something that requires integration, that perhaps in every culture, in every society, there is a desire to pull in a particular direction and that the opposite or the opposite pull maybe has some value because, again, our own tendency to rationalize, our own tendency to scheme and to come up with plans that benefit ourselves, that perhaps virtue does require a retreat into this way. This is going to be the end of this particular uh, podcast for today. I highly recommend reading the Tao Te Ching. If you are not versed with Chinese at all, I highly recommend reading. Um, there's ver- multiple versions online. Read some translations that have the English side by side so you can get a bit of a flavor of the ambiguity there. Obviously, reading it in Chinese is very difficult despite being quite a short book. This took me uh, the most time of any of the books I've done so far in the book club. Um, and I think that that has a downside, but I think as well, these are very subtle ideas that are probably worth reading more than one time. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. I will be back next month with our next book, The Enigma of Reason.